Well, if you would turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. We're going to take a short break from our series in Genesis to focus on one of the most important doctrines of Christianity, the doctrine of the incarnation of Christ. This is the Christmas season. That's what we call it in America, Christmas. Comes from two words, the word Christ and the word Mass. Mass is what Roman Catholics often refer to the worship service. It's not a bad word, it doesn't mean anything bad. Comes from the Latin phrase that the minister would dismiss the people and it would sound like the word Mass. And so they would say, We're going to Mass because that's the dismissal of the service. And if there was a particular saint that was being celebrated that day, then that mass would sometimes be said to be attributed to him. And as the Western church for 1,700 years has set apart December 25th as the day in which Christ was literally, historically, factually, really born, that became the Christ mass. And that's where we get Christmas from. In 1870, Ulysses Simpson Grant, the president of the United States at that time, declared and made Christmas Day, December 25th, in America as a federal holiday, as much as Memorial Day, Labor Day, Independence Day, or any other federal holiday. It is an American holiday, December 25th, officially Christmas, the day in which we remember Christ was born. Our brothers in the Eastern Church, believe it was in January, both try to figure it out from the information that we get in the text. I believe Pastor Appleton preached a sermon on that and how they probably were more accurate than we give them credit for because of the specific seasons that were happening, especially with regard to Elizabeth. But what I want you to notice is that it is good and right that we remember these things and think about these things at this time of year. We know as Protestants there is no other holy day. There is no day more holy than another, as Calvin very clearly taught and so all the reformed fathers but we also know that there's nothing wrong with remembering certain biblical truths on a certain particular Sunday and that was Calvin's practice his entire ministry in Geneva they always kept the Christmas and Easter seasons in fact when Calvin was brought back to Geneva he said quote since my recall I have pursued the moderate course of keeping Christ's birthday as you are wont, W-O-N-T, to do. Calvin was acknowledging there was a great controversy in Geneva, those who wanted to get rid of every remnant of any kind of a holy day and those who thought it was okay to have certain days as long as we didn't actually legislate them. And Calvin took the moderate course. In fact, in a Christmas sermon, Calvin said, quote, in truth, as you have often been admonished, it is good to set aside one day out of the year in which we are reminded of all the good that has occurred because of Christ's birth in the world and in which we hear the story of his birth retold, end quote. It's good to do this once a year. Calvin went on to say, but we cannot legislate any day to be more holy than another, but it's good, right, to worship other days, to have a time where we remember certain things. We do that at weddings. We have wedding services, usually on Saturday. We have funeral services where we worship the Lord. We don't believe they're mandated, but we believe it's good. And so this Christmas season, I'm going to take a break from our series in Genesis. I often do this, but 
seemed to me particularly poignant to do it this time because we were just about to preach Sodom and Gomorrah and I just couldn't bring myself to do that (laughs) on Christmas Eve, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. I thought this would be a good time to do a mini Christmas series, but I've often done that. Pastor Cadman did that and I know Pastor Broadwick would preach on the incarnation as well. And so let's take a moment to ask God to bless his word as we consider again the historical, factual, actual birth of Jesus Christ into this world. Our Father and our God, again, we ask for your blessing. We ask that we would hear this word, that we would believe this word, that we would live by this word, that you would do this in us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord from the Gospel of Luke, beginning in chapter 1. This is God's holy and perfect word. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. There was, in the days of Herod, The king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well advanced in years. So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord and the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. May the Lord establish this word in our hearts this morning, I pray. I want you to notice the doctrine of inspiration. The doctrine of inspiration, the word of God. These first four verses, Luke's preface, is famous in the scholarly world. In fact, if you read the scholars, you'll hear them talk about the beauty and the elegance of this Greek portion. The first four verses comprise one sentence in Luke's writing of this Greek text. And this writing of a preface was common. In fact, it was the customary way that writers in that time would begin a narrative, a historical work. They would write a preface. And it would declare maybe their purposes. Sometimes it would declare how they were going to refute their detractors or so forth. Somebody that they would dedicate the work to. And yet Luke's preface stands out. Even in the secular scholarly world, they will talk about how there is, some will say this, there is no finer example of elegant and beautiful 
Koine Greek that even borders on the classical style. It is so, such a fine and beautiful example, not to be exceeded by any of the other prefaces in men like Herodotus, Josephus, Thucydides, Hippocrates, Dioscorides, Polybius, Plutarch, Galen, many others. They say they, you look at all these great works and no one can actually rise to the heights that Luke rises to. And one of the things that stands out in Luke's preface is that there's no human bias. There's no agenda. There's no side taken. There's no ulterior motive. There's no, the scriptures are being given in order to accomplish something else that he's not telling you. God gives us his word that we would know his word. He communicates the truth to us for the glory of God. That's the purpose. There's no other purpose but that we would be saved, that we would bow the knee to Christ. That's the purpose for the word of God. There's nothing else, right? We hear politicians speak. We hear someone on the media, some news reporter. We know they're trying to push something on us, right? The commercials, the advertisements. Buy this car, buy this handbag. Look how nice it looks on me. It'll look that nice on you. We know there's always an agenda, right? There's so many things, even in our personal communication sometimes. We catch ourselves saying certain things, trying to give the impression to make somebody think something to get them to do what we want them to do. We all do it. Sinful. We use people as means when no human being is ever a means. Every human being is an end to himself. We should love him and make ourselves at his service when it is appropriate to do so. Luke's preface is beautiful. It's inspired. It's the word of God. I can tell you this. When I went to translate Luke's beautiful, elegant, inspired preface, and I always translate the text before I preach, and I sit down with my Greek Bible or my Tanakh, my Hebrew and I got to the first word and I had to look it up. And the second word, I had to look it up. The third word I knew. The fourth word, I had to look it up. The fifth word, I had to look it up. I know Greek pretty decently, better, let's say, than most ministers my age. And that's not a boast, that's a detriment to us all, but I keep it up. I have. More than 80% of the Greek words memorized. I know what they are. I can recognize them. I thought to myself, I cannot do this. I cannot preach from Luke. I don't have enough time. This is going to take me all day. And it did take me well over an hour to get through this one sentence, four verses, doing the word study, seeing how they're used, trying to recognize these constructions that were complicated. Oh, yeah, they were beautiful. <laughs> Except if you had to do the work to get there. Then I got to verse 5 and it was easy Greek. It was so easy. It was like reading Hebrew in the Greek language. And Luke does that intentionally. In fact, from verse 5 on, all the way through into chapter 3 even, we have the most Hebraic portion of the New Testament, bar none. Luke writes just like a Hebrew, uh, like Moses talking about Abraham. He puts the verb first and then the subject. It's wonderful. It's so easy. But the first four verses were very difficult for me. But Luke was inspired to write the word of God. 
Jesus promised that he would ensure the apostles to write the word of God. What we have here, beloved, is not the words of a very um, erudite, insightful uh, men, women about God. We have the word from God to us. Infallible, inerrant, God breathed, theopneustos, God exhaled. Luke is writing the word of God. And what I want you to notice is he knows it. I think too often Christians, even evangelical Christians, get the idea that, well, you know, that Paul and others, Peter, John, James, maybe these, you know, the gospel writers, they wrote these letters, they were important, they're godly people, and somewhere down the line, you know, it became scripture. The church made it scripture, or they, you know, somehow... Christians thought, well, we need to preserve these letters and so forth, as if they didn't know they were writing it. That's not the case. I can show you that in so many places. That's not the case. Peter actually calls Paul's letters scripture. Paul says things like, if they do not obey this word, they do not obey the Lord. If they don't recognize this, they are not recognized. He couldn't say that about his own opinion. They knew they were writing scripture, and Luke does too. I want you to notice that here. Look at verse 3. It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things. From the very first. From the very first, by the way, is the word anothen, which most often means from above. You could translate it, having had perfect understanding of all things from above. Matthew Henry says it should be translated that way. Luke is making a direct and an explicit claim to inspiration. That from above I've been given understanding. And the Greek certainly would correspond to that. And again, that word anothen almost always means from above in the New Testament. When Jesus says you must be born again, it's literally you must be born from above. Because our birth is in heaven when we are converted, not on the earth. That's what Nicodemus had to be taught. Can I be born again from my mother's womb? Jesus says it's of the spirit, from heaven, from above. But even more, Luke makes a claim, notice, for certainty in verse 4. I'm going to come back to this. But this is the thing, that only the word of God is certain, is infallible, is inerrant, is inspired. And Luke understands that he's writing that, that he's writing the word of God. And that claim can't be made for any other word. Either Luke is filled with arrogance, delusions of grandeur, a liar, or he is telling the truth and he's writing the word of God and we need to receive it that way and we need to recognize that there's a claim here for inspiration. Luke understood it and he knew it. He was the companion of the apostle Paul and the apostle Paul's authority is over Luke's writings both Volume 1, the Gospel of Luke, and Volume 2, the Acts of the Apostles. This is the doctrine of inspiration, the Word of God. Secondly, notice the doctrine of inspiration, the Word of man. Now, some people look at this preface and they try to say, look, this isn't the Word of God. This isn't a claim for inspiration. Luke notices that many have taken to set in order a narrative, and I'm going to do it too. We're all writing about some stuff that's been happening. It seemed good to me also. And so they look at it and they see it as a claim here of, of non-inspiration, of just deciding to do this because it's something that 
he has his opportunity and time to do. And some will even find in this text a hidden reference to these gospels that we always hear about this time of year at Easter, right? The world is quick to remind us that there are all these other gospels that the church doesn't want to include because they don't say the things that we like. And so like the gospel of Thomas and Peter and the Acts of, uh, of Barnabas and all that stuff, all these apocryphal books. And that's what Luke supposedly is referring to. Many have undertaken, and Luke understood there was all these works. The problem with that is that all of those so-called gospels, the gospel of Thomas being the most well-known, weren't written until well into the second century. Luke knew nothing of any of those works. He couldn't have. Luke, we know, wrote his gospel before 62 AD because the book of Acts, the second volume, has to be done by 63 AD because Paul's been in prison in Rome for two years at the end of the book and everything's peaceful and good. And in 64 AD, Rome burns, Nero goes nuts and starts killing Christians. That would have been included in the book of Acts. Luke stops his writing with Paul under house arrest, but free to preach the gospel for two full years in Acts 28. So the latest date possible for the book of Acts is 63 AD. And this is volume one, which occurs before that. Luke has no knowledge of any of the so-called Gnostic gospels, any of the gospels that the History Channel and all the others just love to tell us are the really real ones. Take the time to look up the Gospel of Thomas online. Read it. Compare it to any book of the Bible and see what garbage it is, even just from a linguistic perspective, not thinking that one's the word of God or another. Just look at the value and the, and the majesty of the texts and see which one of them is, is pathetic and which one of them is moving and powerful. Now, beloved, Certainly Luke did use his particular gifts and graces. Well, the doctrine of inspiration includes that. Christianity is not Islam. In the view of Islam, um, uh, Muhammad, when he receives the Quran, goes into a state of, of possession in a cave. And in fact, he tells his wife he's afraid that he's demon-possessed. And maybe he was. And that's how these words come out. He's taken over. It's, it comes out of him. It's not through him, through his will. He is an unwilling and forced vessel. That's the God of Islam, Allah. That's not the God of Christianity, the only God, the true God, who doesn't trump, who doesn't extinguish, who doesn't wipe out the human personality, force it to do something, but moves it, inspires it, right? Causes human beings to write not only the word of God, but what they want to write. God keeps them from making an error. God makes them infallible. The prophets know when they say, thus saith the Lord God has spoken, but they say what they want to say. They say it in their personality. They say it according to their level of learning. And you see that in Luke, as I mentioned to you already. Luke is an educated man. Paul calls him the beloved physician in Colossians chapter 4 verse 14 and he tells us also that he's a Gentile because earlier he mentioned those of the circumcision who were with him and then later he mentions Luke the beloved physician is also with me so we know here is the only author of scripture that we know of that's a Gentile writing a gospel for the Gentiles 
as he serves the apostle to the Gentiles. Beloved, the gospel of Luke is for us. The, love, the, the, the gospel of Luke was written for us. Those who didn't have the covenant promises, who weren't raised up as the children of Abraham, who were brought in later, who were wild branches grafted into that holy tree. There had already been written the gospel of Mark. There had already been written the gospel of Matthew. And there were other. He mentions the eyewitnesses, the preachers that went out from Pentecost on. Luke probably being converted in Antioch by some unknown preacher. We know in chapter 16 of the book of Acts, verse 10, Luke famously shifts from they, when talking about Paul and Silas and Barnabas, to we. And then he almost never mentions Paul without saying we. Luke was always by the side of the apostle Paul. At the end of his life, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, one of the last maybe the last year of his life, the very last epistle that Paul wrote. He says, only Luke is with me. Luke stayed with Paul to the bitter end. Church tradition has it that he died in peace in his 80s, but that he wrote this gospel and that he wrote the book of Acts and he was an educated man. He was a physician and we see these little details in Luke where he will mention especially medical details. Do you know when Luke says those who were eyewitnesses, he uses a word that's found nowhere else in Scripture, though the English word eyewitness is in Scripture several places, where it means to look upon, as Peter says, we were eyewitnesses to look upon. Luke uses the word autopsy, self-sight. It's a medical word of the day. Luke was a physician. Luke was an educated man. He writes in a high level of Greek. He is able to do that, but he's able to write just like Moses because he knew Aramaic and he knew Greek and he knew, no doubt, Latin. He was an educated man and his personality and his learning comes out in his works. Even when he's writing scripture. And you see that difference. I've been reading through the Old Testament in Hebrew and I liked the books of Moses. They were, they were good. I can understand that. And then I hit Isaiah. Oh, that is some hard Hebrew. And then Jeremiah, a little easier. Now I'm in Ezekiel. And sometimes in Ezekiel, I can just go. And then sometimes I hit a wall. But you see the different styles. You see that. But you also see the same message, the same truth, the same reverence, the same conviction. And you see that in the New Testament when they teach uh, seminary students, Greek, they, they always go to a particular book. But to, Rick would probably know what it is. First John. We always read through First John. Easy Greek. Right? We do not mess with Paul. Participle, 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 participle. 350 words, sentence. Thank you, Paul. <laughs> Different styles. Their personality. Of course, God doesn't erase the personality. He doesn't, he doesn't possess them. He inspires inspires them. It's the doctrine of inspiration. And so yes, Luke's Greek is a high level because Luke had been an educated man. And notice also when Luke writes, it says how it, it seemed good to me having perfect understanding of all things. Now you could actually translate that phrase. In fact, it's more literally translated, having carefully investigated all things accurately. So Luke 
investigated. He studied. He went around and gathered information. He had the eyewitness testimony. In fact, many think that Luke's gospel from, from verse 5 on, where he gives the, the very Aramaic-like portion of the birth of Christ that he was using. In fact, Papias, who knew the apostles, Bishop of Hierapolis, at the end of the first, beginning of the second century, he claims that Luke actually used Aramaic notes that Matthew had made. And there were other things like that. That's what Luke's referring to, that there had been other things, recordings, eyewitnesses. So Christians, of course, are going forth preaching the gospel, but Luke is going to write an inspired gospel. And it's going to be fuller and more complete. And so he does go out and get this understanding. He investigates. He studies. Do you know what? The Old Testament prophets did the same thing. God doesn't exclude our human efforts. God doesn't exclude, you know, the human learning. He uses that. He keeps it from erring. Peter says this. 1 Peter 1.10. Of this salvation, the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. That's 1 Peter 1.10. Peter says that the Old Testament prophets too studied and carefully investigated and examined as they wrote their prophecies. God doesn't trump the human author. He quickens him. His spirit comes into him and quickens his spirit and he writes the word of God and yet it's his word. It's what he wants to write. Because God changes his heart and lifts his heart. He, he is lifted up, as it were. And that's why Luke writes that you would know the certainty. The New American Standard translates it the exact truth. A human can't claim that. The exact truth. So Luke knows as he used his gifts, as he studied, as he interviewed, as he investigated, many think that Luke in, uh, interviewed Mary, which is why we get things about what Mary had in her heart, because she told him. And Luke, remember, was in Caesarea for two full years, Caesarea, in Israel. And he could have interviewed Mary and many others at that time. And so God inspired to do perfectly what Luke chose and studied hard to do according to his gifts and opportunities. You know, it's very similar to the way in which God called Israel to conquer the land of Canaan. He promises them, I'll go in, I'll fight for you. So what did they do? They did nothing, right? You have to go in and fight. He even gives them plans, go up and fake an ambush and come around from behind and so forth when it's at eye. They had to go in and fight. God says, I will win the victory, I will fight for you, but they still had to fight. They still had to take up the sword and the shield and go in and God would do it through them, putting fear of them in their hearts, all sorts of things, we get some hints. But God would give them the victory as they went in and used their abilities and efforts. And as they believed, they received the victories. When they ceased to believe, they stopped conquering the land. So also, when God inspired a man to bring his word, that man studied and used his personal gifts and worked. Luke had to actually write, or, or an amanuensis, a scribe. Somebody wrote. Somebody had to work. Somebody had to sweat. Somebody had to speak. God used the human gifts to bring his word. He brought his word through human authors, but it was his word. And this is the way all of God's gifts, in a certain sense, work, right? God uses our works to bring about his grace in the world. 
to bring about his blessing of people. Our works are imperfect. There's a, there's a difference. We're not given a perfect work like prophets and apostles were able to write infallibly. But we still use our gifts. And imperfect as they are, God still brings amazing things through them. People are converted through our witness. That shouldn't happen. We never witness perfectly. And yet God uses it and blesses it and causes it to go far beyond what we could do. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored abundantly more than them all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. I worked harder than all of them, but it was God. Even my desire and efforts, God stirred up. He gives God all the credit, even as he doesn't deny that he worked hard. And yet it was God who did anything. Ephesians 3, 7, I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effectual working of his power. This is how God works in us, right? Philippians 2, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do. Oh, the doing is God's part and the willing is mine. No, God works to will and to do. And yet you will and you do. Well, this is how God works in us. This is why we should be uh, zealous to work as we're trusting in Christ. The more that we do for Christ as we're believing in him, the more God is doing in the world. I mean, do you see that? That's a pretty significant truth. The more I do for God, the more I serve him, believing in Christ by faith, seeking to do good works, however imperfectly, the more God is actually at work. Because he works through us, not against us, not in spite of us. Sometimes, yes, without us. But for the most part, God works as we go forward. And when we don't go forward, we see chastenings and judgments. And so this is the word of man the doctrine of inspiration. Thirdly, notice the objective truth of our face. Well, let me look at some of the verses here. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things, notice, which have been fulfilled among us. Do you recognize that God has a plan in everything? Luke is saying whatever happened has been fulfilled. Now, no doubt he's referring to some of the scriptures that Jesus fulfilled, that the church fulfilled. Remember at Pentecost, when Peter explains the speaking in tongues, he said, this is what the prophet Joel prophesied. In other words, the word of God is being fulfilled as the church is going out, as Peter is preaching, as people are receiving the word. The word of God, God has a plan. It's being fulfilled in us, through us. And Luke writes that, he has that faith. And then he mentions those who were from the beginning eyewitnesses, which means Luke wasn't one. He wasn't an eyewitness. He never saw, never saw Jesus, never saw the miracles. He had to believe by the word that was brought to him, the same as us. We have to believe by the word. The vast majority of people throughout all the history of the world have to believe by the word. Our text is about to end 400 years of prophetic silence in the next verse. I stopped at verse 10. In the next verse, new revelation. After 400 years of nothing. People were born. They grew up. They got married. They had children. They got old. They died. Their children grew up, got married, had children, grew old, died. Their children, their children, their children, their children. No word from God. No miracle. They had the word written. And they were saved if they believed the word written. Do we believe the word 
written, it's objectively true. Whether we believe it or not, it's true is what I mean. I don't make it true. It doesn't become my truth. It is true. It is the truth. And Luke is recognizing that there were eyewitnesses. You recognize, and I've said this before, there is no other way we can receive truth in a more certain way as human beings in this world than through personal witness, what we typically call eyewitness, but sometimes eyewitness can be ear witness. You know, I heard him say that. There's no other way truth can be established. No more way, no more certain way than to have eyewitness testimony. This year, 2023 is the 60th anniversary year of JFK's assassination, 1963. And yet, I went online and did a search, and all the major news outlets, CNN, CBS, NBC, all of them, huge stories in November about the JFK assassination and how it's still a mystery, and how we still don't know, and all these questions that we don't have answered. Nobody does that with when Ronald Reagan was shot. Everybody knows it was Hinckley. Nobody speculates about a, another shooter. You know, the grassy knoll. The Cubans. Aliens, maybe. Nobody speculates. You know, of other, the, 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 the uh, Manson family murders, nobody speculates there. And there's not all this intrigue. Why? Because nobody saw Lee Harvey Oswald pull the trigger. We have a ton of, 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 of evidence, amazing mountains of evidence, all this circumstantial evidence, the fact that he shoots and kills Officer Tippett right afterwards. Why does he just kill a cop in cold blood if he didn't do something? Right? The fact that he plotted and tried to, actually tried to kill, shot at a general months before practicing for the assassination. All these things, this mountain of evidence that he was the one who did it. And yet it, we still... To this day, speculate. More than half of Americans don't believe Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone 60 years later because we didn't see him do it. Nobody saw him. If four people would have saw him do it, nobody would be hearing about that today. Beloved, there's nothing more certain than eyewitness testimony. That's what Luke claims. They were eyewitnesses. They either told the truth or they lied. Paul talks about more than 500 people at one time saw him alive. Why does he say that? Because eyewitness testimony is the most powerful assurance of truth we can get. Today, that's true. I know people will mention, you know, well, what about DNA evidence, right? Oh, if it's DNA, that's more certain. Beloved, you know, DNA evidence is actually believing one expert talking about what he saw in a microscope that nobody else can see. When you talk about a lack of assurance of, of, of truth, and in fact, the Washington Post did an article recently, and over 20 years, it looked at 268 trials in which an FBI lab reported a hair match, a DNA match. And in 257 of those 268 trials, the FBI gave uh, a flawed forensic testimony. The, the DNA test, uh, evidence wasn't, wasn't used properly because it's so sophisticated and difficult. AI, same thing. Video, what about video? You know right now on, online you can go on sites where they can put your face like in there you could be, you know, during the Kennedy assassination or, you know, when the West Wall or the, the Berlin Wall came down and, and they could put you in there and make it look like you were there because they painstakingly paint each frame by frame. It takes a long time, a lot of technology. But videos can be 
can be altered, can be tampered with, edited. And a video really isn't an eyewitness. It's an electronic pre reproduction of lights that are activated by a computer on a screen to make it look like something that was imaged into the lens. Nothing takes the place of eyewitness testimony. That's why when the apostle John wants to talk many years, maybe one of the last uh, books of the New Testament written, the first epistle of John, when he wants to talk about how certain the gospel is, he 10 times mentions personal witness. Listen to this, I wanna just do it. First John chapter one, verse one. That which was from the beginning, which we, which we heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled. We personally saw, heard, touched. He's bringing three of the five senses in. He's already mentioned a personal witness four times in one verse. The life was manifested, it was seen. And we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us, was made seen to us. Which we have seen and we heard and we declare with you. He says it over and over and over again. Because it's true. Beloved, one of the most important things you need to know and believe is that the gospel is true. There's a, there's a, a false gospel that comes up once in a while. I think it's been very popular in the 20th century and no doubt in the 21st. It doesn't matter if the Bible is true. What matters is that Jesus gives you comfort, right? The psychological gospel. That I can believe and it helps me and it gets me through the day. And you know, if he was born of a virgin, who, who knows? Or if he ever even existed. But if I get that personal comfort, that's the value of Christianity, right? I wrote in the article, the historical factual virgin birth in your back of your bulletin, a recent mainline Presbyterian church in this area, in, this in its brochure, says this, some Presbyterians believe in the virgin birth of Christ. Some do. You might as well say some Presbyterians don't believe the word of God. Because if you don't believe the virgin birth of Christ, you don't believe the word of God. And then what? Where do you get that foundation for that Jesus that gives you comfort? If the scriptures aren't true. Oh, well, the scriptures that are meaningful, I take as true. You can't live that way. Psychologically, you cannot live by what you are not certain of. You can't make believe that leprechauns are real and conduct your life that way. As soon as it gets difficult, as soon as you have an important decision, you're going to jettison that idea. And you're going to go by what's real. What you think is real. Psychologically, we cannot live by fantasy. It doesn't work. We have to live by what we think is true. And so I want you to notice, fourthly and lastly, the subjective importance of truth. The subjective importance of the truth. Faith is certainty. Luke writes that we would be certain. Do you see that? That you may have certainty. Beloved, in a time when we can know almost nothing for sure, when nearly every institution and scientist and expert show themselves to be liable to failures, mistakes, misjudgments, misapplications, carelessness, distortions, derelictions, indifference, apathy, biases, prejudices, favoritism, agendas, narratives, party spirit, outright bribes and corruptions. There's one place we can go for absolute certainty. 
That's why the Bible says that God is our rock. The rock can't be moved. The winds of doctrine may blow, the different interests, the different ways people distort things for different reasons. God's word stays the same. And the first thing we need to know is that this is historically true, that it really happened. But the second thing we need to know in the certainty concept is we need to know it accurately. We need to interpret it accurately. It's not enough to say, well, the Bible's true, and then to believe that Jesus isn't the Son of God or that he was created. And take certain scriptures and try to back that up. That's not what the Bible teaches. We have to understand it accurately, faithfully. Luke speaks to that in this preface. That you may know the, thir- the certainty of the things in which you were, in the Greek, catechized. That's the word instructed here. The idea of catechism, of instructing. Theophilus, whoever he was, most excellent, probably a governor, or, uh, or, uh, because that's a title like your honor, most excellent Theophilus. He had been catechized. He had been instructed. He had been taught the word of God, the basics. But Luke is writing to him the full account that he would know for certain. And the bottom line is, beloved, that God's people hear his voice. Jesus said, my sheep know my voice and they'll follow me and they will not follow another. We need to test all things by the word of God. We need to look at the things that the churches, that the church rather has said through the ages. You know, we still look at in our our Protestant faith, we still hold dearly the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the symbol of Chalcedon that teach the, the Trinity of God, that salvation is by grace through faith, And then we have our Westminster standards that have stood the test of time. We examine these things and we need to know these things and we need to hold on to them. And by those truths, beloved, we need to actually live. We need to live by them. Burke Parsons said recently in a sermon that we often get the Great Commission wrong where Christ says, all authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. Go therefore, make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all the things whatsoever I have commanded you. It's actually teaching them to observe. It's not just teaching, to observe, to keep, to hold on to and to live out. The Great Commission isn't finished until we actually receive and keep and walk in and live by the word of God. And I don't have time to do it, but the rest of the text is about two people who did just that in a time where the church is in decline, where they are, when they are a nation conquered by Rome, they are a subjugated people. When the priesthood is corrupt, when their puppet King Herod isn't even a Jew, Zacharias and Elizabeth, what did they do? Well, everything's corrupt. Might as well abandon the church and go out in the woods and build a bomb shelter or something, right? No, they continued to go to the temple. They continued to serve. They continued to obey. They weren't perfect. It doesn't mean they're perfect when it says they were righteous. You know, Paul was, uh, uh, sorry, uh, Job was called righteous and Noah and many others. That just means, as, as Calvin says, the righteousness which is commended in them depends on the gracious forbearance of God who does not reckon to them their unrighteousness, their remaining unrighteousness. That's a consequence. Because they were justified, they did seek to live by their faith. And that's what they did, and it was hard. And they didn't get everything they wanted. 
They had no child because Elizabeth was barren. This was a godly couple, a faithful couple, and they didn't get things they desperately wanted. But you know they were able to continue to believe in God because they knew good news was coming. They didn't know how good, but they knew God wins in the end. And beloved, that's got to be what keeps us going. We know our God wins. I don't know what's coming tomorrow. I don't know if things are going to get better or worse. But I know our God wins in the end. Good news is coming because the good news was born over 2,000 years ago. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are that good news. You are the word, the word of life. We thank you for this account that begins your earthly ministry that begins with your forerunner, John the Baptist, the last prophet of the old and the first proclaimer of the new, that you, Lord Jesus, had finally come. We thank you that you did come and that you did finish the work and that you've sent forth the Spirit. And here we are 2,000 years later, evidence of the power of your word. Help us, Lord God, to live joyfully for you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.